Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Gold Podcast. I'm your host, Isabel, and I'm joined by my trusty co-host, Jade. How are you doing today, Jade? Very good, thank you. I've got a busy, busy week of interviews ahead, so I'm very much looking forward to those. How are you doing? Yes, I'm well. Indeed you do. Very busy. Um, I've actually got my birthday coming up this week, so I'll be taking some time out for that. But then it will be full steam ahead with some interviews for me as well. We have loads of exciting guests coming up this season, so really looking forward to recording and sharing those over the next couple of months. Definitely. Talking of which, what have we got coming up in today's episode, Isabel? Well, uh, today I'm delighted to be sharing a conversation I recently had with Nate Cope, who is the Chief Operating Officer for Otsuka Europe. Now, despite both dialing in from London, we actually did record this virtually, but we got together to have a really interesting discussion about the importance of prioritising the people within a pharma organisation. Let's hear a bit more about our guest for today. So as you mentioned, Nate is currently COO at Otsuka Europe, and this is a company he's been with for the last eight years in various senior roles across digital health and public affairs. But aside from this, he's also a qualified management consultant, and he's previously worked with clients across life sciences and academic sectors. That's right. He's also worked widely with the NHS in a research capacity. He's a non-executive board member for a UK-based mental health charity called the McPin Foundation. And he holds a PhD from the University of Cambridge in molecular biology, so hugely qualified to talk about pharma. But today we are going to be chatting about his passion for people. Uh, as I mentioned, unpacking Otsuka's unique approach to how it prioritises its staff and their well-being. Let's listen in. Hi Nate, welcome to the Gold Podcast. It is lovely to have you with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, of course, uh, we're very excited to have you on and we're going to be talking about a really interesting topic today, which is how to build a people-centric pharma organisation. Now, of course, we hear a lot about patient centricity in the pharmaceutical industry, but we also know that happy employees deliver better results in fact, I actually came across a study recently by Oxford University that said people are 13% more productive when they're happy at work. So it's a hugely important topic. And I know it's an important topic for you, Nate. I know it's something that you are passionate about. So to get things started, where does your passion for prioritising the people within an organisation come from? Firstly, just on that, that research, I'm surprised it's only 13%. I thought it would have been a lot higher. Um, but it just goes to show even, you know, what, what I would consider a bit of a modest increase around the 10% mark, um, the productivity and the happiness. That's yeah, it's really good to see. But where does my passion come from? You know, ultimately, it's, it's because I like people. My best ideas, they come from discussions with others. My best decisions, they come from discussions, interactions with others. Although I must admit, I've sometimes been known to reach agreement on my own pretty quickly, but it's not always the best outcome. Um, and I think what I've realized as I've grown throughout my career, the leader that I am is because of the, the interactions that I've had with my line managers. Um, you know, I've, I've been incredibly fortunate to have some, some excellent line managers throughout my career, whether that was in consulting, on the client side or, or in the pharmaceutical industry, what we're talking about today. And I think it's, you know, maybe it's a part of a, a sense of duty to give back, to, to help others develop and for them to grow themselves or fundamentally, it's the right thing to do, right? I've probably got a bit of a mantra, um, you know, I succeed when you succeed. 
So, you know, fundamentally, that, that's why I prioritise people. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think if you have that experience of having a really fantastic line manager, especially early in your career, that really can shape how you approach people later down the line. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as I say, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that it wasn't just, you know, one or two early in my career. You know, I, I genuinely cannot think of a bad line manager that I've had through all of my career. So, you know, there's, there's testament to, to maybe one or two of your listeners that are probably going to be listening. They'll, they'll sort of be smart. I hope they'll be smiling, um, you know, having line managed me in the past. That's a fantastic track record. Um, so for my next question, Nay, I want to talk about how this could especially be important within the pharmaceutical industry. Obviously, it's so important for all companies to value and prioritise their employees. But why is it particularly important in pharma, do you think? Or is yeah, it? <laughs> well, it is. Absolutely, it is. And, and, you know, I'd even extend it and say it's 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 important, certainly in the science sector or, or the science based industries in general. And, you know, I think most of my colleagues in pharma, they, they would absolutely say that they prioritize, they value their employees. Of course they do. Um, but the reason why I think it's so important in pharma and in the science based industries is that the diversity that we have within the pharmaceutical and the science-based industries is absolutely essential to get that, that innovation, that creation, the development of products, which ultimately are, are aimed at delivering better care for patients. Um, and, you know, as I say, I've, I've seen it in our pharma sector and I've seen it in my, my sort of science-based interactions in the past, whether that was academia or, or in life sciences and consulting diversity is at play and it isn't by accident you know let's let's be honest it's actively championed it's actively encouraged um you know you you opened with a, a statistic about research saying um happiness more productive employees you know there's lots of studies that have shown when you have people with those diverse experiences those diverse backgrounds those different perspectives that leads to a greater outcome for the overall goal of the organization. So, you know, whether that's in the lab, researching a, um, a cell pathway or a molecule, or if it's the marketing team thinking of um, how better to support patients. Um, and it's it's something we really take seriously at Otsuka. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm one of the co-leads for our equity, diversity and inclusion program. And I'm, I'm really proud to say that we embrace that diversity where everyone can be themselves at work. They can succeed. And you know, ultimately, you know, why are we doing it? Of course, for the innovation, the, the disruption, the, the new ideas that will push the company. But it's so that people feel, you know, they're in a supportive, inclusive work environment. Um, there's that sense of belonging. Um, you know, we have a, I sometimes describe Otsuka as having like this almost like a family feel where people, you know, really do know one another and, and can interact quite freely and openly with one another. So, you know, that is why it should absolutely be championed. Um, employees, um, you know, prioritizing them, valuing them um, and having a you know, much richer outcome for the company and, and the employee at large. And you named a lot of things there that really can lead to being people centric, I suppose. But if you had to break down that term into some sort of core values, how would you define it? Um, ultimately, it's, you know, it's about listening to, to employees. And, 
you know, I'm sure I'll, I'll mention this later because I, I don't think this is a, you know, a great, a revolutionary idea by any means. But the, the biggest way that you can be people centric or, or the biggest way that I've certainly found in my career, my experience is, is by listening to people hearing what it is they have to say. It doesn't mean that you're going to implement or to act on what they're saying. But I think when people feel that they are being listened to, they already feel valued um, and that you're taking their opinions, their perspectives seriously. And hopefully those opinions and perspectives are then going to you know, contribute to whatever it may be, your project, your idea, um, the organization direction. Um, so, you know, that's that's definitely one of the big takeaways yeah, to listen. Mm, absolutely. And you touched on Otsuka there as a company. Now, when I was looking at you guys, you've actually got a, quite a people centric corporate philosophy, people creating new products for better health worldwide. So how has being people centric positively impacted you guys at Otsuka? Are there any examples you can give us of where this is actually delivered not just great results for the teams, but great results for patients and the company, innovation, all that kind of thing. One example that that I certainly haven't heard from another sector, another company, is this idea that we're calling Dreamland. Um, this is an initiative that actually started in our Spanish affiliate, whereby they actually held a, an internal competition with their staff. They gave out smart watches to all of the staff and they monitored their sleep patterns for uh, approximately a year. And after a baseline period of establishing, well, you know, what is your average number of hours that you sleep for? And then the quality of the sleep, so the, the REM and, and the deep sleep periods, did that increase or decrease after a series of um, some guidance, um, some advice throughout the course of the year? Now, what, what they did in, in itself is that they, they rewarded employees that had the most improvements with extra annual leave days. So, you know, I haven't heard of a company giving people additional annual leave through essentially better sleep and having better rest. And, you know, why are we doing this? You know, there's lots of studies out there that show when you've got those healthy sleeping habits, again, you're much more productive at work, you're much more efficient. Um, so this is now something, as I said, originated in our Spanish affiliate. We are now rolling it out across all of our European employees. And, and I must admit, I'm keeping much more better track of my sleep patterns as a result of it, because you know, who doesn't want an extra day or two at the end of the year um, that you can have off you know, at your free will? That is a fantastic idea. I love the sound of that. I mean, how does this kind of thing come about? Have you got a specific arm or branch or group in the organisation that's working on initiatives like this? So we haven't. And, and we devolve and empower that idea creation to, to everybody, myself, the, the leadership team, and then even you know individuals that have just started today as an example. So that particular example actually came from our HR leader in the Spanish office, uh, and he he had been doing some outside reading and, and thought this would be a great experiment to try. And I think that's probably the key word. We're, we're, we're very keen on trying experiments to see the benefit, the impact, what they have on the organization, on our people. Um, so, you know, again, it goes back to that listening advice. Um, we've got a very open, um, flat, um, non-hierarchical structure where people can share ideas um, and as I say, they're, they're all listened to. They're not all implemented by any means. 
um, but they're certainly all listened to and you know the ideas that certainly have some of that let's say groundswell of support um, will look to take forward um, but again it, it is not a uh, you know some secret team in the in the back office that's working night and down this it's it's devolved to everybody so that you know everybody can contribute um to these new innovations and ideas within the company yeah i love the sound of it i, I feel like everyone should be adopting something like that and really encouraging to hear that it came from the employees and the staff and that they are having that voice to make an impact in the organization if you were to advise a leader who perhaps their organization could do better in this area, they could listen to people more, they could be a bit more innovative in what they're offering, what would you tell them to consider? Where would be a good place to start? Well, to listen. Um, but aside from that, listen, it's it's the ability to slow down. So I think in today's world, we're all very quick to, to want to move on to the next decision, the next output, the next project. And I must admit, I'm, I'm probably as guilty as this as the next individual. But that that ability to slow down and just reflect on on maybe what you've accomplished, what went well, what what didn't go so well, is is, is sometimes more important than the actual outcome. You know what I've also found as well with with the listening, it's it's, it's all well and good listening to everybody, but I've certainly found that. I've maybe prioritized voices that, that maybe I, I hadn't listened to in the past or maybe disregarded through my own you know, biases, whatever they may be, um, and even preferences. But by sort of seeking out those individuals that you know, want to challenge you, have a very different perspective than you. And, and we all know who these you know, people are in your organizations you know individuals that you certainly respect but you don't always see eye to eye um, from a decision making perspective um you know they can be you know incredible allies and, and and great colleagues that you can interact with but you know that fundamental piece about slowing down and reflecting um you know i wouldn't underestimate by any means yeah that makes perfect sense and i suppose you've touched on it a little bit there but what what do you think the common mistakes people make are well, I think it's maybe sometimes the the thinking that you know what somebody wants or, or what they're asking and, and you think you may know what the solution is when you, you probably haven't sought some of that that counsel, that that advice on on, on what it is that's you know that that's they're really struggling with or, or what they're really trying to solve. Um, so, you know, that's that's the ability to slow down and to get some of those different perspectives so that, you know, you might not so well to avoid making a decision in isolation um, and, and to try and you know, make sure that people are brought along with you on that journey. Yeah, the feeling of involvement, I think, is so important. Yeah, absolutely. Is. It was, um, well, of course, we, we all experienced COVID and, and, and the pandemic and you know, one of, one of the things we really championed, and I, I think this goes back to what I said earlier about, you know, being like a, almost like a family unit within work, is that we, we had this, let's call it family first philosophy, whereby people really put, you know, their own lives first, as opposed to work. I mean, I think we've all rushed maybe from a doctor's appointment, a dentist appointment to that meeting at 10 o'clock, we've got to be there on time. But we really flipped it on its head and said, well, no, look, look prioritize your family. If you need to, if you're a carer or you know, if you're a recent um, mother or family with a baby and um, prioritize that and, and get to the work when you can do it. And, 
you know, I think a lot of people were very, or certainly very receptive to that. And that in itself, I don't think was so unique. Many companies, you know, responded to people during the pandemic, those, those exceptional times. But it's something we've continued to this day. So we've kind of maintained this degree of flexibility with work. And it's, we've seen a shift. People don't always go into the office. There's much more homeworking, but by no means is, is that resulted in a decrease in activity or, or net sales. And I'd even argue actually our collaboration is, is even higher and richer now um, because the interactions we have now are much more meaningful and purposeful. So there's a greater um, drive behind it and people want to you, you know, collaborate um, fundamentally. That's, you know, that's a big takeaway for me. 100%. And it's interesting that you brought up flexible working there because that's such a debate at the moment. That's right. There's mixed reviews coming from every which corner. I don't want to ask what your personal feelings on flexible working are, but with this debate, how do you think people-centricity falls into it? Because there's a lot of people that feel very passionately about this. Organisations are concerned about losing good people if they don't hold on to these practices. But rightly, sometimes it is better to have people in an office. So how, how would you deal with that sort of challenge? Yeah, so do you like that? I, you you, you summarised it excellently. You know, it's, it's a compromise, isn't it? There's, there's some people that are very passionate that they want the flexibility. Yet equally, there are certainly examples where it is better to be in the office, you know, some of which I personally believe, um, you know, workshops, um, putting up post-its and so on and so forth. There's, there's lots of great technological tools out there to facilitate that. But, you know, seeing the whites of somebody's eyes and really collaborating, you know, it's much easier in person. Um, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But it's having that balance. We used to, of course, five days in the office um, and then we went to zero. And, and now we're probably in that equilibrium of trying to work out what's right for the company and you know, based on the culture of the company and, and based on some of the needs of the people. And, you know, what, as I say, what we've certainly done is, is listen to individuals and, and try to respond in a very humanistic way by, by appreciating that, you know, lots of people's lives have been altered as a result of the pandemic, be that through caring responsibilities, um, childcare, um, so on and so forth, um, drop-offs for school. You know, we can see people coming back with a bit of a you know, almost on a bit of a, a high, just having seen their son or daughter go off to school and, and then coming back into the meeting. So that that endorphin rush, we're, we're willing to have that compromise because we then we see the, the productivity in some of the meetings. But, you know, don't get me wrong, there will certainly be days where people do go in. Sometimes they don't want to go in, but they will. But it's for the benefit of, of the organisation. And you know, as I say, it's typically for those those larger scale workshops, um, those interactions where you know face to face is certainly more desired. But it's it's a balancing act, and I think if you spoke to five people from my organisation, you're going to get five different views of what we've got right and what we haven't got right. So it's um, it is a minefield to juggle. But you know, just I think it's having those open lines of communication with individuals. People appreciate that and. You know, I, I don't think you could do more than that. And ultimately, you know, the business needs to make a decision based on the business needs. And I think providing you you share that logic, that rationale, um, you know, people in my experience are very, very understanding and, and willing to get behind it. Yeah, frame it around a kind of common goal that everyone can get behind. Correct. 
yeah, really interesting. So you touched on culture there, and Otsuka is obviously a Japanese company, and I've never actually been to Japan, always wanted to, but it is obviously a very rich culture, quite a unique culture. So does any of that seep into the company as a whole? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, It really does. But, you know, prior to, to that, you know, talking about Japan, it's, it's, it's worth stating, right? We're, we're a European company, European business. Um, our, uh, let's say our values, our culture, they're very much built on, on a European way of life. But you're quite right, Japan, it has seeped absolutely in our, in our office from, you know, physical interactions, the stories that we tell, some of the values that we have. And, you know, some of the, I, I think maybe some of the biggest ones that I've seen is we, we have visual reminders, um, one of which is you know, what I would call a bit of a monument, maybe not a monument in the traditional Western sense, um, but in our training center in Tokushima, which is a, a, a small farming village in Japan, we actually have a tomato tree in the ceiling of the, um, the training center. And, and the tomato tree suspended from the ceiling produces hundreds of tomatoes um, and, and you, if you look up you can see all of these red dots um, littered throughout the ceiling and a normal tomato tree doesn't you know, I'm sure we've all maybe a few of us have grown tomatoes in the garden they do not produce hundreds I'm currently growing some and I've got about six at the moment there we go so and you know I would consider that a good yield but this one produces hundreds and the reason why it does that is that it's grown in water so it, it's grown hydroponically as opposed to being grown in soil and the idea that you know this um what what this tomato plant is meant to do is to to actually say that if you sort of free yourself from some of the constraints of of normal thinking clearly we all assume that plants have to grow in soil um you can unlock some potential something that wasn't known before so you know the idea of this monument this japanese thought process it encourages us to look beyond maybe that that traditional thinking um, that we have. And, you know, another one, which I, I think many people will be really familiar with, or they might have heard of it, is, is decision making. So we in Japan, the way that they make decisions is, is something called the, the Ringu system. And the way that this works is that it's ultra um, consensual, very non, well, it is hierarchical, but it it encourages the voices and opinions of everybody. So if you imagine a a circle, well, a pyramid that has a, you know, instead of the the pyramid shape, imagine a circle at the bottom going up and getting narrower and narrower. Starting at that bottom, you've you've got managers that will have ideas. They'll get reports, uh, opinions, perspectives from their peers. And slowly it goes up the management chain so that once it reaches the top, there's already a consensus, a groundswell amongst the organization that this is what we should be doing. So it becomes more of a a rubber stamp, just a quick ratification. Um, So this this ultra consensual decision making, we we apply in Europe as well. And, you know, I must some people get frustrated because it can take a bit longer to reach a decision as you can imagine, trying to get perspectives from different um, stakeholders. But ultimately, you've got a decision that, you know, has the buy-in from from all of those individuals that are going to be affected, all of those individuals that will be implementing it, so that when you come to the implementation, it's, it's a much speedier process. So a longer groundwork 
but a quicker, speedier implementation. And you know, that certainly, again, in my experience, is, is a very Japanese practice and is, you know, is highly present in our in our office and in our sort of thinking. But you you must, you must get over to Japan. You said you never went. You need to go. Yeah, a hundred percent. And wow, Ozuka's got some very interesting things going on. Are you guys hoping you're gonna get your own tomato tree at any point in the European offices? Yeah, well, maybe, maybe we, um, you know, we've got some budding growers, so they might, um, they might uh, try and champion it to put it in the office. That's true. It does require a lot of attention, um, obviously, um, to to ensure that you know there's there's no infections and so on. So it's. Um, I can imagine. Have you ever tried one? Have I, no, I haven't. No, I, I you know, I, I don't touch it. I, um, I was tempted, but I, I didn't want to. No. I don't blame you. Um, Nate, thank you so much for chatting to me today. I am nearly at the end of my questions for you, but every episode this season, we are going to be asking our guests a question. We're going to ask them to reflect. And the one for this season is all about motivations and challenges, basically. So the question is, what gets you up in the morning? What gets you jumping out of bed? And what is one thing that can keep you lying awake at night, pondering what the answer might be? Yeah, that's that's, oh, that's a really good uh, two-parter, a really good question. What gets me up in the morning? Let's start there. It's genuinely, it's it's the ability to make a difference, you know, whether that's for my immediate team, my peers, the, the wider organisation, for our patients. In terms of what keeps me awake, um, well, last night it would have been if well, it was my two children. They certainly kept me awake last night. But more more seriously, I I think what would keep me awake is is the fear of not being challenged. You know, I I really relish variety, learning, personal development. You know, pushing myself. And you know, aside from that, you know, what else would keep me awake? It it would really be you know not being surrounded by people wanting to make a difference. Um, and, you know, fortunately, you know, within Otsuka, I, I think we're surrounded by those types of people in abundance. Lots of people who do really want to make a difference for their our patients. So, you know, that, that makes me incredibly proud that I'm sleeping soundly and I'm, I'm not having to stay awake as a result of them, which is great. <laughs> Nate, thank you so much for sharing those with me and thank you for joining me on the podcast it's been a pleasure to chat to you today fantastic to hear a bit about Otsuka and what you guys are doing hopefully lots of learnings for other people in the industry and yeah we might have to have you back another time soon thanks ever so much I've really enjoyed it all the best it's clear that Nate is a firm believer in putting people first Isabel do you have a favourite highlight you can pull out from that conversation I think my highlight this week was around the specific initiative that he raised. It was fantastic to hear how the idea of the sleep watch scheme came about. It started sort of at that grassroots level and really filtered up throughout the organisation. I think that's a really fantastic takeaway for anyone looking to become a bit more people centric. And I also loved his story about the tomato tree, although I have to say I would have been very, very tempted to have one. I have to agree with you there. But that does sadly bring us to the end of today's episode. I hope you've all enjoyed listening. That's right. Be sure to tune in this time next week where we'll be sharing our next episode, which is featuring Pfizer's Ian Winburn, who I spoke to about the expectations versus reality in rare diseases. It's not one to be missed. But until then, it's bye from us. Bye. Bye.